0: We're going to turn to Acts chapter 12 right now, so if you could turn with me to Acts chapter 12. It's on page 1091. So as I said, we've been working through this book of Acts, and this is actually a real pivot moment in the whole book of Acts. The whole front half has been the focus of the church in Jerusalem. How the the, the new, emerging, growing church is living, encountering challenges, but experiencing the grace of God. And now there's this pivot moment because everything following this, it is the church just thrust out into the world. And it's a fascinating little pivot. We read about Herod. So earlier in chapter 12, Herod has been persecuting the church, and then we pick it up with verse 19. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on the throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. This is God's word. Let's pray for a moment, shall we? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your living Word. We pray that this little vignette, this little portion of Scripture would would leap off of the page and would shake off ink and paper and become a living Word for each of us today. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Never, ever discuss religion and politics. If, that's the conventional wisdom, right? For a polite dinner with friends or for avoiding unnecessary workplace conflict. If you want to ruin a perfectly good meal, if you want to, you know, turn your boss away from you and lose all sorts of friends, go ahead. But conventional wisdom says, never discuss religion and politics. It's just too emotionally charged. Well, this morning, I'm going to wade into that minefield with you. We need to talk about faith and politics. And I recognize this is dangerous territory. It is, because we live in, right now in a moment that is so polarized, so politically polarized. There is this great rift between what is conventionally called conservatism and liberalism, and each side insists that you need to see the other side not only as wrong and probably crazy, but you need to disdain the other side and see them as potentially evil. That's the, the, the huge rift that we live in in this day. There's so much fragmentation and polarization, and Christians can get easily drawn into that as well. Doesn't it seem like there's a lot of Christians who are getting so divided politically, instead of remembering that I'm first a follower of Jesus Christ and second or maybe third or fourth, I'm conservative or liberal, I'm a socialist or a capitalist or whatever. And so we need to talk about this. We need to talk biblically, sensibly, about how we as followers of Jesus engage with our whole world, including the realm of politics. And this is important for us to talk about not only because it's such a politically polarized time, but more importantly, it's important for us to talk about this because of our faith. Every time... We confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. That is a politically charged statement. You've got to know that. Every time you confess that, you are saying, I'm a citizen of God's kingdom first and foremost. Even while I live here on earth in Ontario in Canada, in this city, in this particular country, I'm a citizen of, of God's kingdom, and I live as a witness of another kingdom, another way of life, God's kingdom. And so to confess Jesus Christ as Lord is to say every other political ruler, governor, prime minister or president is not Lord and they are subject to the reign of Jesus Christ. Our faith has that sort of impact. It's not just this nice private thing we do on Sunday and then we park it away for another week and when we come back. Or think of even how we pray. Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer saying, your kingdom come. Now, that's, that, you're, you're, you're asking God for revolution there. God, may your kingdom come into this world. May your will be done on earth, in Canada, in Toronto, as it is in heaven. May there be some marriage of those two spheres. And that prayer necessarily involves you in how we arrange human affairs. So it's political and so we need to think deeply about it. And this passage we read, it is such a helpful passage for us for getting our bearings on how we as followers of Jesus can engage the world as citizens of God's kingdom. And one of the the, the first easy helpful things about this passage um, is it helps us realize that politics was as charged back then as it is today. Actually, throughout the books, you see the church um, regularly get into encounters with authorities, whether they're religious authorities, whether they're political authorities. The church was fueled by this new understanding of the world. God is king, and Jesus is reigning. He is ascended. He reigns over all things. And and God who has come to us in Jesus Christ has begun His kingdom, His rule among us. We are citizens of this. We're a new people. We live in a new way. We're not beholden to country or state. Um, Our ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus, and that way of living was electric, and it, it provoked some challenges, and what we see in this passage. It's pretty much just like in our world. The presence of of a pretty domineering political power, Herod. Herod who was the magistrate of the the Roman Empire. he He was Caesar's representative and he was a man of great political power. And Herod was someone who had his fingers on the levers of global influence. He pulled strings and stuff happened. He sent armies and people died. He pulled strings and economic economies were shifted and influenced. So Herod is a powerful leader, and he was opposing the church. At the very beginning of chapter 12 of Acts, Herod is harassing the church. He's arresting Christians with the intent of persecuting them. He has James killed. He has Peter now thrown into prison, going to put him on public trial, and in all likelihood, going to publicly execute him. And it wasn't the church that where he dominated. Herod dominated the whole sphere around him. He had oversight of this region and some in this region we read were, were being harmed by Herod's political policies and machinations. Tyre and Sidon were in famine, they were hungry, they, were, they were, didn't have the necessary, the necessities of life because they had made Herod furious. And so he squeezes them with the fist of power, and we don't know how he did that. Perhaps he did that through trade wars that he instigated. Perhaps he did that through shifting port city access, but Tyre and Sidon, they were left out, they were suffering because of the power of one leader. Isn't that an old, old story? That gets repeated again and again. A powerful leader, a deeply insecure demigod, quickly set off in anger, and he's going to oppose anyone who stands in his way, any challengers. This this is Herod. This is many leaders of our world throughout history. But this is not how God intends power to be exercised. Power is a good thing, is a gift from God. And the biblical vision of authority and power is that it is meant to be exercised on God's behalf to bring about a just world, a flourishing world, to serve those who are the least, to serve the common good. That's not how Herod understands power. He relishes his power. And this whole passage is filled with this smell of power. It just reeks of it. You can see. Here is Herod. He presents himself in his royal robes. And then he sits imperiously on the throne. And then he pontificates. He speaks. Here is a man who is just drunk with power. So inebriated is he with that power and influence that he welcomes the worship and the adulation of the people. And this little detail is so helpful for us as well because it's a picture of how quickly, how easily politics and political leaders get idolized. How we bow down and worship all those in political power. It's so fascinating when a society loses its sense of God People fill that spiritual vacuum. They fill that vacuum with all sorts of things, and politics is one of those things they'll fill it with. And so we look to political leaders or, or, or political platforms as messiahs, as religious doctrine, and our deepest hopes are placed in these political processes because we believe it's going to finally deliver, but it never does. It never can. And so Christians have realized this and had a balanced view of government. We, we don't see government as our ultimate hope. We see it as a good instrument, a servant of God, but its power is limited. And that understanding, actually, it flows right from Christianity and even from a passage like Acts 12 that we just read. In this passage, we see how at that time, how deeply rooted was this understanding of the divine right of governors. The king, the rulers, had this divine authority. They could not be questioned by anyone. That was was conventional wisdom at the time. That was common understanding. The gods have chosen us, the rulers would say. We are the choice of the gods. Every single king would say, I am a god. I have absolute authority. You cannot question me. And in response, Christians would say, there is one Lord, and it is not you. It is Jesus Christ who is Lord. And because of that claim, they never gave any government that ultimate allegiance. We are called to give governments what is duly theirs, but not our ultimate allegiance. And Christians have been able to, to stand in this with this confidence with this poise, in part because they have seen how God has handled rulers like Herod. Proud, bullying Herod, he welcomes all the adulation, receives the worship given to him, and what do we read? He's struck down by an angel. The most powerful leader in that area, the chief opponent of the church, is stopped dead in his tracks now, press the pause button there, real quickly, because you might read that and you think, come on, are you expecting me to believe this actually happened? Like, Herod, boom, struck down just like that? I mean, Acts is filled with, you know, hard to believe miracle stories. This feels like imaginative storytelling. Don't tell me this is true. But in fact, it is, because it's verified by independent historical resources. Josephus, for instance, in his antiquities accounts for this very event and dates it to AD 44. He talks about, narrates how Herod came out in silver robes that glinted like the sun and how everyone assumed this is a God and how he spoke with the voice of a God and yet how he collapses in that speech and dies within five days of internal injuries. This is not myth. Like, the Bible is not fabricating stories, it is speaking truth. Luke is writing a historical account that is trustworthy. Scripture is trustworthy in what it speaks to us. And its clear message, certainly in Acts, is that all human leaders are not our ultimate authorities. God is king, and God deals justly with those who try to be God, to play God. And history is filled with with God dealing with those sorts of rulers. There is example after example. This summer, Betty and I were able to spend about 10 days in Berlin, Germany, and Berlin, Germany is like an archive of leaders who have assumed power and felt like they were God and caused untold harm and yet were brought to an end. Kaisers were exiled, Hitler commits suicide in a hidden bunker. The East German government that tried to set a boundary controlling people so that they couldn't travel, it is toppled again and again. Throughout history shows what Acts 12 demonstrates. Any ruler posing as a divine authority is going to be brought down Because God is sovereign over all, and His Son, Jesus Christ, is King and Lord. This is the good news. Luke is telling throughout Acts. Right from the very start, Luke and Acts, remember, are sort of a two-volume set. In the very beginning of Luke, where where Luke introduces us to Jesus, announces His birth, and His mother Mary is singing a song, and here's what Mary sings. This King Jesus who's going to be born, he has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things but sent the rich away empty. And here's King Jesus doing just that, what his mother prophesied. God's kingdom has come in Jesus Christ and it is breaking all other kingdoms. And God, not any human authority or king is going to have the final word. Acts as many positive things about rulers and authorities and about the state. And Christians have always had uh, this understanding of holding up the state of, of good government. Governments are given by God to preserve good order in society, to govern on His behalf. And when rulers overstep that boundary, God has always dealt harshly with tyrants and demagogues. And this passage ends with a really poignant emphasis Herod, the official king of the Jews, right? He was the official ruler over the Jewish people there who plays at being God, comes to a really bad end. And then Luke adds this little comment in verse 24. But the Word of God continued to spread and flourish. Try to stop the gospel, any human ruler. Just try. You cannot the Word of God continues to spread and flourish. Luke couldn't make his point any clearer, could he? Although there are many tragedies and hardships in following God and living out His kingdom, God who revealed Himself in Jesus Christ is sovereign and His purposes are moving forward through His church. The Word of God continued to spread and flourish. You know what Luke is saying? He's saying that the gospel, the power of God's kingdom it's, it, it's not a political power. It is not affected through the levers of political machinations, not at all. That, that's limited in what it can do. The church has been an unstoppable force because it came with the Word of God, with truth, with a truth that changed the way people lived and how those people lived utterly changed the world around them. And it did, that early Christian community just turn that Roman Empire upside down because they were changed by the gospel truth. For example, Christian communities, on the one hand, it was interesting, on the one hand, they look far more conservative than the surrounding culture. For instance, in things when it came to like sex and family relationships, the early Christian community was one of the first groups in the world to decide that killing your children is actually a bad idea. Abortion, no. And they thought, and because largely it was linked to female infanticide. In those days, the Roman world, uh, parents could do away with their kids if they wanted. If it wasn't economically feasible, and especially if it was a female, they would just simply throw their child out in the field. They'd die of exposure. And that was something often done to female babies because they weren't as economically valuable to the family. But the Christian church, in response to that, said, no, no, we affirm the value of every child, we affirm the equal value of male and female children. Not only that, the Christian church said, you know what, sex is important within marriage. In the pagan world, a woman would never have an affair outside of marriage. She was committed only to her husband. Men, on the other hand… Well, men lived by another standard, and they could sleep with whomever they wished and wanted, and so they would have mistresses and affairs. It was a double standard, and the Christian church said no to that double standard. Sex is properly situated in the covenant of marriage, and because of this ethic in the church, families flourished and grew. Women saw that and felt a sense of safety and security because of that. So on the one hand, the Christian church in that society looked very conservative, and yet on the other hand, the Christian communities looked way more liberal than the surrounding culture, because the gospel truth changed the way they related to one another in their relationships. The gospel truth that they lived out was that everyone is a sinner. It's the great equalizer, isn't it? We are all before the foot of the cross, sinners in need of and saved by grace. And what that meant is that all those economic and social divisions that society sets up, the church said no to all those. And so Christians combined people among classes and races and economic stratas and meant, and that just didn't happen in respectable Roman society. But in the church, middle class and upper class Christians were used all their financial resources and gave radically to those of lower income status And you see this profound gospel community taking shape that was so different than the culture around them. So on the one hand, they were more conservative. On the other hand, they were far more liberal. The culture couldn't figure them out. The Word of God spread and flourished and that community of Christ totally changed the Roman society One historian put it like this, talking about the early church. He said, "...to cities filled with the homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christians provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity." And so what Christianity brought was not just a spiritual movement, but a whole new culture. It was an alternate way of living together in relationship in human society. It was a new politics under King Jesus. You see, our faith necessarily connects us into politics, into in relating to others, the affairs of human society, how we engage the world. So how do we do that today? How do we live out our faith in this crazily polarized political environment we call the current moment? I think for one thing it means that we're never going to have a simplistic Christian response to politics. You know, either the claim that, well, Christians really shouldn't be in politics, that's sort of a dirty area, let's leave that. No, 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 Jesus is Lord over that too. But also, this notion of, let's take our country back for Jesus. Um, Both those are inadequate. In each society, in each time and place, the form of political involvement has to be worked out differently, distinctly, with absolute faithfulness to Scripture, but also with a great sensitivity to the, the current era and culture and time and place. And so because we say and confess, Jesus Christ is Lord, We also say that political party, that specific political platform, that political party is not necessarily God's way. You know how some people do that? They attribute all sorts of Christian attributes to specific political parties or leaders, and they say, well, you know, any Bible-believing, spirit-filled Christian is going to vote for them. That is just political idolatry. We don't do that. Following Jesus resists that sort of idolatry of any one party or platform. Because of the gospel, we resist both the simplicity, simple solutions, and this idolatry because we're citizens of God's kingdom, which means we are going to search for something of God's goodness and His kingdom in every political party and platform. We're going to be discerning to spot what is the good of God's kingdom on the political left and on the political right. As a Christian, we need that sort of spiritual discernment together to affirm the good of God wherever we see it. So it leads us to be discerning. And so on the basis of very deep theological biblical convictions, you can find yourself across the spectrum politically. We can't say, this is Jesus' party, this is Jesus' program. We're mixing God and Caesar, God and Herod. Can't do it. Now don't think that should encourage apathy or stepping back. Yes, get involved. Get into whatever political party that you believe can do the best job or that best resembles something of the goodness of God's kingdom, how you understand God's kingdom. Get involved, but then there be critical of it. Bring a gospel's perspective. Don't sell your soul to the party to hear it. Be critical of it learn what's good and name what stands against God's kingdom there. Be that voice. What you find is that following Jesus doesn't make you politically apathetic or complacent. Christians always live with this bold sense of the future. If God is king, if Jesus Christ is king, if He reigns, that kingdom is fully coming one day, we live with this great hope that God is at work to renew all things in this world. And because we follow a king who gave His life for us, serving us, while we live then in service for others. And so calling Jesus king, not Herod king, but calling Jesus king compels us to to serve the cause of the poor to work for justice in the public square. A Christian is never politically indifferent or disengaged. Rather, your politics get changed because of Jesus. And it equips you. The beautiful thing is the gospel equips you to better engage in the world. And here's how it does that. The gospel humbles you. It is a profound humbling effect. forces you to recognize, I am a broken sinner. I need salvation. And that means I cannot point the finger at anyone else and say, you are the problem. I'm as much a part of the problem of the broken systems we have here. You cannot say, those people over there, they're the bad guys. They're the real problem. There's a humbling power of the gospel that doesn't allow you to look at anyone else as being the enemy, being the problem. And what that does is that makes you helpfully cooperative with other people. You are able to find more common cause with people different from you because of the gospel, because you recognize, I am as broken as these around us. And ultimately, you become a more pragmatic person, more willing to to seek out helpful, constructive solutions, willing to do things with people who are different from you. And then finally, and for our day and age, this might be just the most important thing. I think the, the gospel, the Word of God that brings flourishing, that spreads, that has this power, it equips us to be civil. And again, this might be the most important thing in our day and age for our current moment. One cultural commentator, a guy named Oz Guinness, writes this. He says, how we deal with our differences in public life will be a defining issue for the future of humankind. And because of King Jesus, because he was a humble king, because he was a servant king, because he never used his power coercively, because we follow that king, it equips us to be the most civil citizens in the kingdom, in this world. The community of Christ is meant to be that group of people who demonstrate a different way a model of what civility, of love, of peace-seeking is about in the public square. So following Jesus should make us the most civil people in political conversations, people who show public kindness, who will put the best spin on your opponent's argument, seeking to understand it, not trying to characterize it or cartoon it, but really trying to understand it fully, demonstrating patience, pursuing peace wherever you can. How we need this at this time. Could it be said of Christians here in our city that we are the most civil, honest, peaceful, decent citizens of Toronto? All because we proclaim Jesus is King. Not Herod, not John Tory, not Doug Ford or Justin Trudeau. Jesus is King and Lord because we know he's a king unlike any other. He's a king who gave up his power and wealth for our sake. He is the Lord who dies so we might live. He is the ruler who exercises power, not with a fist, but with a hand of compassion. He supplies strength for the weak. This is a king who sympathizes with the broken. He strengthens, he sustains us, he guards us and guides us. He heals the sick. He forgives the sinner. He delivers captives. He defends the feeble. He serves the unfortunate. This, this is our king. This is who we follow. And Scripture proclaims and history shows that Jesus Christ, that king, is Lord over all. The Pharisees, they could not stop him. Herod could not kill him. The grave could not contain him. This is our king, friends. Do you know that King? Today, I invite you to join God's good revolution and place your life under the reign of that beautiful King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for, for a, a story like this, which at first blush looks awfully strange. And as we dig deeper into it, we see such wisdom and such beauty and, uh, and, and a story that gives us strength, God, to be public citizens in this world, citizens of Your kingdom, living the way of the kingdom, uh, but citizens who serve the good of the world we find ourselves in. God, would You make us more and more like our King Jesus? Would You teach us what it is to use power, to use it wisely and well? Would we be people who challenge and confront any abuses of power wherever we see it? Would we encourage politics that are civil and that are concerned for the common good? I guess our prayer, God, is simply summarized in the prayer Jesus taught. Your kingdom come, God. Your will be done right here in Toronto as it is in heaven, right here in Ontario as it is in heaven. God, we pray for your kingdom to come in our lives, each one of us. May your kingdom of light shine truth in deeper, more profound ways. May we give our lives increasingly to the lordship of Jesus Christ. May your kingdom come in this church. May we be a a community of Christ that models, that demonstrates something so beautifully, radically different to a world that is looking, looking for another way other than this polarization we experience, other than this demonization of those who are different from us. Would your kingdom come in this city and in this province and this world, God? Make it more like Jesus Christ. Oppose every force that stands against your kingdom, God. Bring your kingdom of justice and peace. May your kingdom come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.